0: Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. <laughs> good morning to uh, all those streaming around the world, especially our dear, precious Angelina and Rob, who are in another country, which I can't mention, but I'll I'll tell you they speak Mandarin. And I love you guys so very much. Also to the South Campus and also to the West Campus, and most specifically, uh, my peeps out at the Hive, traditional out at the West Campus. God bless all of you, and it's a great privilege for me to be in the pulpit this morning. i got to get used to it again. It's just a kind of a fun thing to do. Would you get your Bible and turn with me to uh, John chapter 1? That's going to be our text this morning. And while you're turning there, let me just say something very quickly. Uh, You know, I I want to express my gratitude, and this is not solicited, to uh, our lead pastor, Cody McQueen, executive pastor, Bill Egnor, our staff of incredible men and women, and our elder board because, uh, you know, this is a church of seven or 8,000 people on a regular basis, and they've had to navigate the last 10 months through not just your needs as a church body, but a pandemic through social unrest and also through a, a pretty up-and-down uh, election cycle. And so I, I personally want to say thank you for keeping the rudders straight as you possibly could in Jesus' name. So thank you, Cody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, a Board of Elders, staff, staff. Uh, the church is healthy and moving forward, and we're going to continue to do that because uh, the Lord God is—he's with us. You know, uh, you may not know me real well, but most people know me real well. And know that I'm a genius, and I—I—and I, I have really uh, come to grips with that reality in my life. And—and uh, and, you know, I'm just kidding. If you don't know me, I'm definitely anything but a genius. But there is one person in the world at this very moment still believes that I'm as smart and capable and as funny and witty and as good a theologian as walks the face of the earth, and that's my new grandson. Here he is, Miles William Kitchens. Look at that. See, I just told him a joke, and he's already in sync with my family. He's off and running. He was born uh, March the 20th, and isn't that awesome? So uh, those of you who've asked about our family, we're doing tremendously well, and we have a new addition, sweetheart, uh, Miles. Now... I'm not a genius, obviously, but there are some things I know for sure, some things I've learned, some things that I am uh, pretty bright about. And, and one of those are the three universal questions that uh, every sociologist says, every society asks. They're just three really eternal, universal questions. Here they are. Who, what, and why. You ever thought about that before? Like who? I just the other day said this, who ate the last piece of pie? I said to my wife, you know. But about what? What's that smell? What's that funny smell? Or why? I say this all the time to our staff members, our single staff, men and women. Why are you dating him? You know, so those, those are universal questions. They really are. Think about it. 80% of the questions or interactions you have with anyone during this week is going to have one of those three. First two are pronouns and the last one is an adverb. Why? And that's really what this is all about. So let me ask you this morning... From a theological perspective, who is Jesus to you? Or what is he like? Describe him to me. Or to the point of the sermon this morning in our series, Why on Earth? What a privilege to be preaching in this series. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why on earth did he come incarnate? Why is he here? And and What does that have to do with you and your life and your walk with him? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack the first chapter of the Gospel of John. But before we do that, would you look with me? Uh, John chapter 16 should come up on the screen, verse 28. These are Jesus' words about himself. He says this, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So the Lord himself says, I came into this world, the incarnation, and I'm going back to be with the Father, which he did, But the question we're dealing with this morning is, so what's in between? Why did he do that? It's critical as Christians that we know why he did that, and we wrestle with the reality of Jesus is coming. Why on earth did he come? That's the question. Why? So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read John, the first chapter, because John's going to answer this question for us, in the first 18 verses, pretty specifically, and I'm going to draw those out. You should have your sermon notes. You should have your Bible with you, maybe a pen as well. So I just want you to follow along with me as I read from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Hear then the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him, what was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. Now drop your eyes down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And may God bless the public reading of his word. What an incredible passage. Uh, Rich stuff. This was written by John, the apostle in 90 AD, and it gives us some significant nuances and answers to the question, why on earth did Jesus come? So with your notes, let's just unpack that for the next few minutes together. The, the, the first comes in, in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first significant reason our Lord came was to communicate. To communicate to us essential truths about God, man, and all matters related to eternity. Now, everything about eternity wasn't given to us, but as it relates to who God is, who man is, and eternity, that's why Jesus came. He came to communicate those things for us. Now, how do we know that? Please notice something in verse one there. Three times the word logos is used. Word, word, word. Did you notice that? Uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter one, about yes, you'll see on the screen the, the, the Greek and then the transliteration, and then, of course, it's the word, uh, in Hebrews chapter one, we're told that in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophets. But in the New Testament, in this time, he speaks to his son, the Lord Jesus. And over in Revelation chapter 19, the name of Jesus is given to us there. He is the word of God. We're talking about Jesus here. John is clearly talking about Jesus when he said, the Logos has come. And of course, it's, It's the word. It's the communication. Now, it's the interesting thing about this uh, word logos, there are really three words in Greek, and by the way, John wrote the book of John in Greek. We're told by, um, I believe it was Josephus, that there are 100,000 Greeks in that era for every one Jew living in that part of the world. So, John knows, and it's true because in the church in that first century, there were many Greeks not Hebrews, not Jews. But in the Greek language, three words for this word communication. One is just the, the word that what you hear, the verbal part of it. The other is about your emotions. When you say, ah, oh, gee, you, you express emotion, that was a different word. But this word was very curious and actually hard to translate in English. It means expressing something, it means not just an expression, but wisdom in that expression. You've heard someone say before something really wise, and you go, well, that makes perfect sense. That's this word logos. That makes perfect sense. It's an expression of truth and of wisdom in a communication, kind of building a bridge, if you will. Now, the Hebrews understood this. Remember, John's writing to Greeks as well as Hebrews. They knew the Old Testament. Moses brought the law, the word, down from Sinai. Prophets spoke ex. Cathedra, if you will, as God's miraculous voice to the people. They put the word on little boxes on their foreheads called phylacteries. They memorized the word. That's actually how the Old Testament was translated for the most part or passed on through memory. So it was a, no issue for them to see logos. But for the Greeks, it's quite different. Uh, Heraclitus, who was even before Socrates, wrote a book called uh, Nature. And the Greeks in those days did believe in creation, interestingly enough, but they didn't believe in a deity that was personified. But what they believed is all of life was chaos. All of life was chaos. In fact, that's why even Heraclitus said, you never step in the the same river twice because everything is always moving and changing. But anytime you saw harmony, that was logos. That was some force outside of nature bringing harmony together. When you see the rainfall and, and the heat bring evaporation and the rainfall again and, and the grass grow and the flowers grow, that harmony in the midst of life, which is chaos, is caused by something outside of this called logos. When the Greek read verse one, uh, chapter one, verse one of John, they would think, I understand that. There's a force outside of me. There's a force outside of us. Nothing is constant, but logos brings consistency to life. So basically, John's saying here, Jesus was the ultimate medium of communication for all mankind in every language, both the Jew and the Greek. Listen to what one theologian says about this. It is not just this objective, neutral, detached thing like the Hebrews understood, logos, It's also not this unknowable, unexplainable force, as the Greeks understood. But the word of God is a person. And he was with God in the beginning before anything was made. And the word was there with the Father. And in fact, created everything by and through the Father. So John says here, Jesus sought to bring the good news in our own language through the Logos. To bring harmony to our world, to bring an expression of peace, to teach us who God really is, who we really are, and what's on the other side. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Rome before, probably most of us have, but in Rome, and I haven't seen it, but I've only read about it twice, there is a museum, actually, it's a palace, and in the palace and the ceiling, like the Sistine Chapel, there's this incredible fresco called Aurora. Some of you may have seen it, and it was painted by Guido. Now, I always thought Guido was a rough Italian guy that you could hire on Friday nights to beat up someone who's trying to date your girlfriend. But there's obviously a famous painter named Guido. And so if you stand in the palace and look up, your your neck gets sore and you just can't, you can't take apart the nuances and the colors and all the wonderful things about Guido as a painter. So what they've done at the palace is they put a massive mirror on the floor. And you sit around the mirror, you sit around the mirror, literally, and you can just look at all the different, movements and nuances, and it communicates what the author's like, what the painter's like. Jesus came. Why did he come? First, to communicate who God is, who we are, and what eternity's like. Look at verse, the next one is actually verse 14. I want to jump down to 14 just for the sake of a cadence as it relates to the flow. Verse 14, 14a actually, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The second thing, the second answer to this why he came, is to meet the father's desire to camp among his children. Amazing. And you say, well, Pastor Ted, I don't see anything about camping in that passage. You'd be wrong. Please notice again the passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt the word dwelt there is tabernacle. Immediately, the Hebrew mind goes exactly to Numbers chapter 2, where we're told that Moses was instructed by God to build in the midst of the camp of the, the wandering Jews, you know, across the desert after they left Egypt. Uh, in fact, if at nighttime, if you were to see this image in your mind, you'd see probably several hundred thousand campfires all the way across the desert floor. And in the middle of it, Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle, a tent, God wanted to camp with us. That's really exactly what was happening. God wanted to camp with us. He wanted a tent. He wanted to pitch it right alongside everyone else's tent. Now, this one was a multi-million-dollar tent, it's true, but he wanted to do that. In fact, interestingly enough, uh, at the tabernacle, these things happened. The glory of God came down and dwelt there. Think about Jesus for a minute, right? Uh, That's where sacrifice took place. Think about Jesus for a minute. That's where the law was preserved in the ark. Think about Jesus for a minute. And then note, something was pointed out to me this week, I'd totally forgotten. The cover over the tent, the tent itself, was of one seamless fabric. And if you ever asked yourself the question, why did they cast lots for Jesus's undergarments at the foot of the cross? And what's expressed there? It was one seamless garment. This whole idea of Him coming and tabernacling among us, it was God wanting to be with us, with His people, like His people, living with us. The the Ten Commandments were in the ark, and this was all about an expression of who Jesus was. The Word became flesh, it suffered frailty. The Lord Jesus was hungry. He thirsted. He rested. He slept. He did all those things. The purpose was to come and be with us, beside us, His creation. You know, Lynn and I, uh, we've camped some over the course of our lives. And I, when I read this passage, I always think about when our children were young, and we had a place down by Comanche, Texas, that we wanted to go camping. So I go up in the garage and I get out my camping equipment and and I, well, it was just junk. I mean, just be honest, it was just junk. So our dear friends, Joe and Molly Burkett, who Joe at the time was an elder, we got to talking about camping and they loved to camp. And Joe said, and Molly, why don't you borrow our tent? And I'm a super moocher. So I said, hey, yeah, we'll borrow your tent. I'll pick it up. I picked up his tent. We loaded up nice tent, nice poles, probably a six to eight person tent. We were going to have a great weekend. Oh, man. We head out, we get to the camping spot, <laughs> we unpack the car, and I say to Lynn, hey, Lynn, where, where are the poles? You, men, men always blame their wives. Have you ever noticed that? For anything like this, that happens wrong. Where are the poles, honey? Did you leave them at home? And, of course, I said, well, we, didn't, we only stopped one place all the way down here. It was at Walmart. And I'm thinking, do you think somebody stole our poles at Walmart? Well, why, what happened to our poles? Well. It didn't matter at that point. So we took some tree limbs and so forth and tried to prop this thing up, and it was a nightmare. So the camping trip was over, and what am I gonna do? I borrowed this tent from a dear friend. So I had another buddy in high school who was into fabricating metal. So I went to see him, took the tent, laid it out in the parking lot, said, okay, we need this kind of dimensions." This is back before internet when you could order anything. These days you can, but you couldn't in those days. So he fabricated for me, believe it or not, poles for this tent that I borrowed from our sweet friends, the Burkitts. They were about 25 times heavier than those aluminum poles that came with the whole thing. So I can still remember going over to Joe's house and, and lugging those things out of the car and laying them on the driveway and said, Joe, I'm so sorry, we lost your poles. Had to have some fabricated. And you're probably thinking right now, so what's your point, Pastor? And normally I'd be asking the same question, (laughs) but I'm not. Jesus, nothing was fabricated about him. He was the real thing. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. When he came, he came in 100% human flesh. Nothing was made up about him. There have been throughout church history different Uh, challenges with theologians as it relates to who was Jesus. Was he just flesh with real God inside him, or was he just a man uh, with a little bit of God inside him? Was he fabricated? Was he manufactured? Was he borrowed and all that's not true? He was not. Listen, folks, I don't know how old Jesus was because he's from eternity, but I do know this. There were 30 candles on his cake. He came to dwell amongst us. He came to set up a tent right next to you and to me. And I would ask you this morning, is he that close to you? Do you feel his presence? That's why he came. That was his purpose for coming. Are you enjoying his presence? Let's look at the third one, carrying on here. Look at verses four and five with me. Lays out in verses four and five, John does in chapter one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Wow. This this third point is just something we see throughout the whole of the New Testament. But he he came to be an eternal lantern or a flashlight or whatever you want to say, a light shining in the darkness of a human cave. And I chose my words carefully when I said human cave. Because that's where mankind actually lives, according to the Scriptures. In in a cave. By the way, the whole of, of the Gospel of John... Uh, has a motif of uh, darkness and light or light and darkness. In fact, I think that George Lucas got Star Wars from the Gospel of John because throughout it you see darkness and you see light and you see darkness and you see the light. Humanity lives in darkness. I'd like to read to you what Paul says about us uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. It'll come up on the screen here. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Did you notice what he says? We're in a cave. We're inside a cave in darkness. In fact, I learned this in college. Philosophy philosophy, is a remarkable discipline, but basically philosophy in our world is blind men and women looking in a dark room for the switch. And the switch, when it's flipped, will tell us who and what and why. And it takes light, which is what Jesus came, to see the switch on the wall of life. In fact, you may have read this, but theology is the queen of all disciplines. If you climb up a mountain of all disciplines, science, sociology, medicine, philosophy, on the top will be seated an individual who is a theologian, because it's through the light, through the light of Christ that we actually see life the way it really is and can make wise and insightful decisions about who we are and who the world is. And by the way, can darkness overcome light? Notice what he says here. And the light did not, and the darkness did not overcome the light. Can darkness overcome light? It can. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was sitting in my study on the second floor of our home and the sun was coming out of the west and it was just brilliant backyard. The backyard was lit up because Lynn mows it really well and keeps it completely manicured. And, but there was a peak of darkness out there, which was the shadow of our house as the sun was going down to the west. As I kept studying, it just kept growing and kept growing. And about 30 minutes later, my backyard was completely dark. It can happen. I know men and women throughout the years who've said yes to Christ and, and their own sin and darkness slowly crept into their lives. They pushed Jesus out and it just covered them. They still knew him, still were his, but living in darkness. That's, that's what's happening here. He's saying that he is that lantern that came into the world. We've all been in dark caves before where it's so black you couldn't see a thing and yet Christ has come into it and his light shines in the corners so we can actually see who we really are and see what our needs really are and how we need to address those needs. Man is blinded by sin, so we, we, we lose hope. We don't understand grace because we live in a cave of darkness, and he came to shine light in that cave. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you see your life as missional, as light? Because when you come to know Christ, what happens to you? Yes, yes. You become a lantern, <laughs> walking around in the darkness, shining light, the light of Christ, in the lives of those who really, really need to see the switch on the wall, to have answers to who and to what and to why. I hope that makes sense to you. Look at verses 12 and 13. He continues to unpack these first 18 verses on, and answer this question, why on earth? Verse 13, we learned, he came to establish and transact an eternal adoption program. It's about adoption. Look what he says. But to all who who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God was putting together on this earth a whole new family of people, and every single one of us is adopted. Every single one of us. We All of us know some family that's adopted someone. And what I love about adopted people is they're wanted. They're really wanted. Look look at what he says here in verse 12 and 13. He mentions that some are born not of blood. And actually, the Greek text says plural bloods, which I think has to do with different nationalities blending together. And then he said, nor of the will of the flesh. I think that's lust. I think that's lust. People are born because of that. Or the will of man. We're going to have more children, honey. Our family's going to grow. We're going to get married. He's basically saying here that none of who we are has anything to do with human achievement. Jesus came to build a new society, to build a new people group from heaven, totally different, has nothing to do with the will of any man, any pastor, any evangelist, any Bible teacher, even you. He came to build a whole new group on earth. Now, let me support that just for a moment. This may be interesting insight for you. You've heard in Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel, there was a group of peoples who had the same language, right, and that group of people began to create their own God, we're told, and build, Ziggurats are actually structures in which to get up to God. They constructed their own God. And in the process, God came and said, no, we're not going to let this happen. We're going to disturb their language and move them out across the earth. And a sociologist or an anthropologist today or someone in a cursory reading might say, well, that's just how we explain. that There are different, na- different people around the world with different languages. And actually, that's not true. But Here's my point. In Acts chapter 2, and we built denominations on Acts chapter 2. There was a group in Jerusalem who began, the early believers began to speak in languages that were not known by them. And people, Jews and Gentiles alike who had come to know Yahweh had come to Jerusalem and they began to understand and hear in their own language. What was happening there? God is saying, in the finished work of Jesus, I'm going to create a new people group on this earth. They may speak in different languages, but they're going to be one. They may be from different parts of the world, but they're going to be one adopted group, one people group that belongs solely to me. And the only way to get into that specific new eternal group on the earth, people group, is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came to set up this adoption program and, 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 and to launch it. Notice Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He gave the right to become whole new people group and it's not of man's work it's of the spirit's work only amazing in my opinion so let me ask you this morning are you walking in confidence of your adoption of who you are in Christ that's why the church is so important folks that's why there's so much debate about the church today should we be open should we be closed it's just a tough it's a tough call because of the pandemic but the church is ecclesia means to gather it's we're, we're a, a different people group, and we have different color skin, and we speak different languages, and yet we are all one group. What an amazing thing Jesus has done for us. What an amazing thing. Notice verse 14b, quickly, it's the fifth one, to display a gift previously unknown to the human race, grace. The human race does not know what grace really means, and it didn't know it till Jesus came. That's what he says in the latter part of verse 14. He, came, he, he is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I won't take too much time to unpack it except to tell you that it's interesting he puts grace before truth, because typically you'd say truth and then grace. What is truth? Truth is the law. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is what God tells us from the Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and everything else that goes out from God. The righteous standard of life is truth. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you're saved through faith. This is truth. There's nobody that comes into this adopted kingdom, adopted people group that doesn't come through Jesus. Nobody comes that way. It's, just, it's amazing. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, let me read this to you. He, Paul says this about grace, and this is my takeaway from this point. I personally believe once you uh, comprehend the The truth about grace, your pride and arrogance falls away from you. Your self-sufficiency falls away from you. You can't understand grace and walk in your own self-esteem. You can't do it. Paul says that. Look, chapter 3, verse 7 of Ephesians. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, to me though I am the very least of all the saints. Do you think Paul used to think he was the least of all the saints? No. He was the chief of Pharisees. But when he learned the grace that Jesus brings, he says, I am the least. I'm the very least of all saints. This grace was given, and I was given the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we realize what grace is. So what is grace? Okay, here's grace. You're going down I-30, you're going... 120 miles an hour, and the speed limit's 70. That speed limit is the law. It's the law. And it normally happens to me. I top the hill, and there's the police officer. He's got those reflective sunglasses on. You know what I'm talking about? He's standing beside the road. He's already out of the car. He already, and normally for me, he'd go. You know what I mean? You've had that happen, haven't you? Grace is you pop the hill, you're looking right at Jesus, and he says, Go on by. There are always consequences to sin, beloved, but as it relates to our relationship with him, uh, grace. You're here this morning because of grace. Some of us don't even realize it. And once we embrace what Jesus has really done for us and the grace he's bestowed upon us, and even as we, that we're lawbreakers, there's forgiveness in that, and second chance. It All that stuff that makes us smell as humans spiritually, falls off of us, falls off of us. To display a gift previously unknown to the human race, grace. 16a, look at 16, the sixth one, and we'll close. For in his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Another statement of grace, this time grace upon grace. And and, and this whole point is, he came to reveal to us that we are not good, but we are loved. I didn't say no good, we are good. But we are not good as it relates to our relationship with him spiritually. That's throughout the whole of the scriptures. Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinned. We're all sinners. And that's not good, folks. And if God is really God, there is judgment that goes along with our sin. And yet, grace, you know, come on. Grace upon grace, he says here. I just love it. Here's the point of, the, of this passage notice the word fullness for from his fullness what do you think he means by fullness yeah he means the incarnation of Jesus into this world he means that he became a tent for us he means that he died on a cross like a real person would die with the real pain of crucifixion, it means he was buried like a real person was buried, his, was fully experiencing that and he rose from the dead and now he's at the right hand of the Father from his fullness, his full experience as our redeemer. We receive from that grace upon grace. People who live in darkness don't see grace. They're incapable of seeing the light. The loving kindness of Jesus, the unending, unending well of grace, mercy and affection he gives to us. Jeremiah 31.3, listen to this. Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. And I just, I just love um, Friedrich Lehmann's, you, you remember this hymn, don't you, The Love of God? Listen to this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and where the skies of parchment made, For every stalk on earth, a quill, and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong! It shall forevermore endure. The Saints and Angels' Song. It's awesome. He loves us, friend. That's why he came, expressed his love for us. And and I'll land the plane here. Verse 18, look at it. He says, no one has seen God, the Father, God, the only God, the only God who is at the Father's side, which is a reference to Jesus, the eternal Christ, the Messiah. He has made him known. So to clean the window through which the human race can see God, to clean the window through which the human race can see God, it's very clear in the Gospel of John, when you saw Jesus, you saw God. It is crazy to me, beloved, that in seminaries around our world right now, they're teaching our students that Jesus didn't really claim to be God. I do not know what Bible they're reading. I do, well, they're not. They're not reading the Scriptures. The Scriptures are no longer the infallible, and errant source of truth. But he is, in fact, God here. And it's very clear what he's saying. He's saying that he's a window through which we see God, through which we see. You cannot see God through the Muslim when Islam does not show us God. You don't see the true God through that window. You cannot see the true God through Mormonism, for instance. Joseph Smith was not a window. He didn't clean anything off that we could see the true God through his life and his ministry. Our Hindu friends, we can love them as much as, as we can love anyone, but uh, Brahma, Vishnu, you don't see God through. In our bedroom, Lynn and I, Lynn painted this painting. It's blind Bar- Bartholomew, Barn. excuse me, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. Uh, she painted this, and it's fabulous. It's in our bedroom, in our home. This is a, a statement of exactly what Jesus has done for us, that he opened our eyes, that he's the window through which we see it all. The incarnation of Jesus Christ has a div- divine focus. The answer to the question why, it's for you. He came for you into the darkness, to live alongside you, to be your Savior. So let me ask you a few universal questions in closing. Who is Jesus to you? Why, or what rather, is the basis for your eternal salvation? Ever thought about that? And finally, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, why not? What are you waiting on? (laughs) What are you waiting on? Uh, They met when they were in high school. Married the first year out of high school. Young family, new job, two children within three years. And she was standing at the sink in their kitchen one afternoon, dishes piled high, dirty diapers over in the corner, and uh, she began to cry. How'd she get here? A few moments later, she took off her apron, and she left the house. That night, she called to check on the children, and of course, her husband was totally shocked, and to say bereaved was was an understatement begged her to come home, where are you? She wouldn't tell him. She called every night for the next two weeks to ask ask about the children, but would never tell him where she was. She began to call only once a week, just about the children. He told her on the phone and begged her on the phone, please tell me where you are, please come home. We all need you, please come home. Finally, after six months of that, he went to her, her parents, his in-laws, and borrowed the money to hire a detective. Discovered she was in a second-rate hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. Second floor, room 205. He borrowed money from his in-laws then to be able to travel by plane to go to get her. And as he went up the stairway, you can imagine what his heart was like. It was just beating like crazy. How would she respond to him? He hadn't seen her in six months, nor had the children. And when he opened it, she knocked on the door and opened the door, he simply said, we love you, we miss you, please come home. They fell in each other's arms. She came home with him. What a wonderful story. But a couple weeks later, they were, had put the kids, tucked them in, popcorn, a movie, and he finally got the nerve to ask her. And I'm, I'm going to read to you what the conversation was like. He said, uh, we missed you so much. I loved you so much. The kids love you so much. Why did you come home with me now? And she said very profoundly and simply, before those were only words, but then you came. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, I thank you for the fact that you came for us that there was a reason for the incarnation, and that reason is focused specifically on me and those worshiping you this morning, your, your adopted family. And we bless you and thank you for all you've done for us in Christ. May we live in that reality. May we absorb all these nuances of the answer to why and love you deeper and worship you more profoundly. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Amen. Amen.